I'll be reading from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The New Testament, Luke chapter 4, 1 through 13. The Genesis verse is on page 2 of the, of the Pew Bible. Herein is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In the New Testament, we'll be reading from Luke chapter 4. Again, page 859 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we read these scripture readings this morning, we acknowledge the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The first Adam gave in to temptation, and as the corporate head of humanity plunged us into sin, and yet not because of him only, but because we sin ourselves and are in need of a Savior. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, withstood temptation and provided the once-for-all sacrifice as the Lamb without blemish for our sins. We thank you that Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. We thank you that for by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Therefore, we know your promises are true, even the promise of salvation to those who believe. We cling to your promises as we thank you for them. Please be with Steve this morning as he brings us your word. Please be with us as we receive it. May the teaching equip us to be better suited for your service. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Good morning. Uh, it's been 14 and a half months since I was here in this position. <laughs> Glad to be back. Been visiting other churches and my children and grandchildren and traveling a little bit and coming in occasionally to see you all and praying for you as you continue to search for the next full-time, uh, more permanent uh, leader for the congregation. Gail and I are continuing to pray for you and, and for him and for his coming in, in due course. One of the problems I have now being retired is that I'm no longer forced into the scriptures by my job. I used to have the advantage of being able to look into the Bible because I was, well, paid to do it. <laughs> it was my job. And I had to have something ready, not only on Sundays, but other times as well. That's no longer true. Except for occasional preaching, I'm not driven into the scriptures by my circumstances. And it's presented a, a problem for me in the sense that my own spiritual laziness would cause me to drift away, turn my attention to other things, and set my affection on the things of this world. So what to do? I began to think about what, how to respond to this, and I thought perhaps the best way to begin would be to think about Jesus and ask myself the question, what was he thinking and what was he feeling? Now, we're well acquainted with Jesus, what Jesus said and taught, and we're well acquainted with what he uh, did, but we don't have very much information in the New Testament about what he was thinking and what he was feeling. Just a few instances. And of course, you know, we're drawn to intimacy with people when we not just know who they are and what they do and their name and where they live, but what are they thinking and what are they feeling? The whole question of autobiography revolves around the question, I know who this famous person was, but now I'm going to learn how they went through this, and I'll be drawn into their lives a bit. Same idea with diaries. Diaries tell us what the person was thinking and feeling, not just what they were doing. Interviews on television. I noticed in these athletic interviews at the end of the games, the people who go into the locker rooms always ask questions like this. What were you feeling? when you won? What were you thinking when you did that play? They try to draw us into the life of, the, we already know who won the game. We already know a general outline of what happened, but they try to draw us into the intimacy of the, of the moment and the person. So my question was, what was Jesus thinking and what was he feeling? And this is one place we can find it in the book of Luke, chapter 4. As Bill Cooper has read, this is the temptation of Jesus. And you'll see in my sermon outline that there are several other places. What I've begun to do is to construct a little bit of a sermon series, even though I don't preach anywhere regularly, 
based on this question, what was Jesus thinking? What was his inner life like? What was going on inside of him as he was leading his ministry? We can find some of this in Gethsemane. We can find a lot of this in John 17, as Jerry Curran has preached to us. We can find it in the incident of Lazarus, the widow of son, widow of Nain's son being raised from the dead, and really here also in the temptations. The temptations are at the beginning of his ministry. Just as it's located at the beginning of Genesis for Adam, so it is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You'll notice here in my outline, the biblical context is that this particular story comes just after his baptism and his genealogy. This is an initial earthly confrontation with Satan, but he knows him well. He's known him a long time. Indeed, back in the mists of eternity, And this is placed in his life as the first obstacle and a key challenge for Jesus. What is he going to do with temptation? Now, the theological context is that this is a picture and description of the active obedience of Christ. This is crucial stuff. If Jesus hadn't faithfully served here and resisted temptation, then we would have no hope. None whatsoever. If he had met with temptation like we do and responded to it like we do, we would have no hope in the future. This is the second Adam, as Bill has said, and he's now beginning his, his probation. Would he merit the righteousness we need as sinners by perfectly keeping the law? The Bible says he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. What would he do in the face of temptation? We know what we have done. We have failed. We have fallen short. We need a redeemer, not like Adam, but like the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Also, kind of an unusual passage in this sense. I call it the cosmic context. There are unusual descriptions of his travel with the devil. All of a sudden, he's up at the top of the, the, the temple. And then he's out in the wilderness. Puts me in mind of these Marvel superheroes. Jesus is far beyond what they are alleged to have done. But he's shown all the kingdoms of the world, it says, in an instant. Now, how did that happen? This is uh, Most of what Jesus' life on the earth consists of is mir- the miraculous, yes, but common, ordinary occurrences, walking and talking and touching and listening. And here he's zooming around. We think for a moment, too, as we begin about Adam and Jesus, it's a contrast. Adam, as Bill has read, was placed in a very lush garden with all of his needs met. He wasn't hungry. He wasn't cold. He wasn't uh, exposed to the elements. He wasn't vulnerable in any way that way. Every one of his needs was fulfilled. Not only that, he had a strong relationship with his Helpmate, Eve, he wasn't alone. There wasn't a big crowd, but he wasn't alone. He had his father and his wife to care for him. And he had only one issue to face. The question of would he eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Or wouldn't he? That was an on-off situation. Would he succumb to that one temptation 
and expose us to many temptations? Or would he meet it and succeed in his probation? On the other hand, Jesus is in a desert. It is a harsh environment. It's not a garden. It's a wilderness. He has no food at all for 40 days, 40 nights. You know, in Ramadan, the Muslim gets to eat at night. But there was no Ramadan here in the wilderness. Every need, the food was was a tremendous need. And more than that, I would say, he was all alone. Temptation is at its sharpest when we're alone, right? We tend to, when we're alone, we tend to have more self-pity, more weakness of the flesh, more pride, because no one brings us down. Jesus is all alone. The angels come to minister to him later, but at this point, unlike Adam, he faces these things by himself. And I say these things. He has multiple issues. As I said before, Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in all points as we are, but we're told here that there are three spectacular probationary issues, three times as many as Adam faced in the time of his testing. And as Bill Cooper also mentioned, both of these men serve as our representatives. When one failed, we also failed. And when one succeeded, we also were given his righteousness, as we shall see. I want to say, too, as we begin, that these temptations may seem a bit odd to us. At least they did to me. I'm not likely to be tempted while going without food for an extended period. I have no plans to do that. (laughs) I mean, really, have we ever been under such circumstances? We miss a meal or two, but no more. Also, I'm not going to be tempted, I don't think, to throw myself down from a high place and and live. I'm not evil Knievel. I'm not trying to impress the world with my miraculous deeds. And I'm not tempted, really, to, to be like the James Bond villains who want to rule the world. But these must have been, this this is what draws us in, these must have been special temptations for Jesus. The devil knows him. He is well acquainted. He has known Jesus for many years, to put it mildly. He knows where he might be weak. He knows where he might be susceptible to temptation. So he places them before him. And that's where we begin here. It says, first of all, that he was tempted. I've already mentioned it several times. I give you in the outline a little bit of definition. A temptation is an inner inclination to want what we do not have. Theologians who look at Genesis 3, they say, Adam and Eve must have really wanted that tree at some point. Without actually eating the fruit, they had an inclination in that direction. They didn't act upon it until then Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam, but 
Temptation is something that is based upon an inner inclination to do something. We're susceptible to it. All my life, people have offered me peanut butter. I, I don't like it. I won't eat it. Nothing in the world wrong with it. But if you would give me a peanut butter pie or a beautiful peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it wouldn't tempt me in the least. I would have no desire to take and eat. That's not a temptation. It might be for you. It might be your circumstance. But for me, it would pass unnoticed. Same with coffee. I don't like coffee. Everybody likes coffee. I don't like coffee. Give me the most beautifully brewed coffee that you're aware of, and I simply will not be tempted to drink it. Now, peanut butter and coffee are not evils, but we must recognize that the evils that we do succumb to usually start with something that we want that we don't have. So I don't want peanut butter or coffee, so I'm not going to be, as we say, tempted by it. Secondly, the thing about temptation is that there's an occasion or opportunity to respond. The things that I am tempted by are not much of a problem to me if I don't see them or have them any access to them. If I'm tempted to be proud and I meet with only failure, then the temptation will go away. Thirdly, temptation includes power. This, again, invisible but very real. We are inclined to do what we want. We are not indifferent. And this gets to the core of this passage. We have in our minds many times the idea that Jesus was sort of impervious and invulnerable. But the power of temptation is real for us and it was real for him. We can just stop and close our Bibles at this point if we believe that Jesus was not tempted, not really. That he was so strong it really did. It rolled off of his back like water off of a duck. The meaning of these words is that Jesus truly and deeply felt this so that when you are truly and deeply felt it, tempted, you know what he experienced, and he knows what you experienced. So temptation includes this inner aspect. It includes also the outer aspect of opportunity. It includes a very strong inclination and pull. And finally, it includes plausibility. Adam and Eve were fooled and beguiled by the devil. It made a certain amount of sense what he said to them. It was plausible. Plausibility is one of the great veins of humanity. It sounded like a good idea at the time. Right? It seemed like a good thing when I did it. How was I to know? Well, Adam was warned. Eve was warned. But we have to say it seemed 
like a good idea at the time. And to Jesus, in the weakness of the wilderness, these things have a strong tug to him. They pull on him. And he has to find an answer and a response. Finally, temptation is very dangerous. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Lead us not into temptation. Temptation can ruin us if we give in to it. Our friends, our families as well, generations. So it's a serious matter. So we look now more closely at his first temptation. It says in Luke 4 that for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry, probably before the end of them, but certainly by the end of them it was a crescendoing thing. And he's offered to have food by the devil who said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread, and you could eat. This is a physical trial, no doubt. When we don't eat, we feel the effects of that on our bodies. But my contention is that it's more than that. He who from all eternity had the access and attention of his father now has been ignored for 40 days regarding his simple request of food. He was led by the Spirit into this, it says in verse 1. So he's in this situation. And I would think that it would certainly occur to me in that situation, has God abandoned me? Has he turned his back on me? Now he's going to on the cross. But has at the beginning of my ministry, is it going to be like this? Is the Father going to turn away? He must certainly have felt this, or this is not a temptation. And let me say, too, this is a long time. Forty days is not a long time in the span of our lives, but 40 days without food and nourishment, that's a long time. It's not a passing moment. His endurance was surely broken down. It's my contention that Satan wants Jesus to think that the Father doesn't care for him and that the Father wants too much. At the beginning, he's making it too hard. He wants Jesus to believe that he must fend for himself. Either God doesn't know about my hunger or he doesn't care about my hunger. That certainly would be my response. Why is he putting me through this for so long? And Jesus himself must have been drawn into the temptation to reject his father at the beginning. And this whole new arrangement of him having left heaven and come down to earth and now to be the savior and to walk the the walk that he needed to walk in order to be our redeemer Is it really true that he's the beloved son that the voice of heaven has said at his baptism? This is my beloved son. Well, you have a funny way of showing it. This draws me. 
to putting myself in the place of Jesus, not as a redeemer, not as a savior, but as seeing what he did for me. It wasn't easy. And it started long before the nails pierced his hand and feet. Here he is at the beginning, enduring a very painful ordeal, the physical deprivation, along with the question, does my father really love me? Is he going to abandon me? I say the real issue is this. Okay, God, this far I've trusted you, but no further. You're asking too much. I know I've often thought this. You're asking too much. It's too hard. It's too long. It's too deep. It's too heavy. There is a temptation which Jesus must have felt at these moments to say, it's too hard. It's too much. What can I do? This is succinctly stated, this is disappointment with God. He didn't give me what I expected. He didn't give me enough of what I hoped for. What am I going to do about it? This is where faith comes to action. We find ourselves disappointed with him. Disappointed with his provision. Wondering if he cares at all. On the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, the disciples are walking in the downcast way and Jesus appears beside them and starts to inquire about their situation and they said, haven't you been around here? Haven't you heard about this? Uh, Jesus and his crucifixion? And we had hoped, we had hoped that he would be the Messiah. And now they are crushed by the fact that he has let them down. That's it. Jesus, in the eyes of those disciples, had let them down. And we must be honest to say that there are times when we feel that God has let us down. And it's something that the Son of Man felt too. We might have this idea that the Father and the Son were always in harmony, and they were. There was no sin between them. They were, there was loving fellowship, but this was a test. The Father was not providing for the Son. He was not making it easy for him. Jesus might have turned away with some justification, but not with ours. Had he failed in, in, in his weakness in these moments, we would not have any hope of eternal life because he would have fallen prey to self-pity and sin just as we do when we're weak, when we're hungry, when we're cast down, and when we're tired. The most likely time for Gail and me to get into an argument is when I'm tired. Right? I think so. Unless she wouldn't feed me, but that doesn't happen. <laughs> the most susceptible time for, for such things is after 40 days without food.
Paul says, don't be weary in well-doing. This is weariness in well-doing that does not result in sin. Forty days and forty nights without food. One becomes weary and weak. It's true. We're all weak here. We find one illustration of it in the book of Revelation where the cry of the martyrs goes up. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? One of the questions in heaven is, how much longer till Jesus comes back? Even in heaven, the martyrs are asking that question. And Jesus has every right to ask it here. You, you gave me my flesh you, you made me submit myself to flesh. We agreed to do that. I came down. I was baptized. I was born. I was baptized. I've started my ministry. And now what? No food. I don't need food in heaven, but now that I'm here on earth, I need food. I've got to have it. And the Father denies it to him. And the Satan sees this. And although he's well acquainted with Jesus' ultimate power and, and uh, eternal abilities, he, he, he tries to attack him. This is the same temptation he faced at Calvary. Remember the things he said from the cross? One of them was, I thirst. I have a physical need. Beside the pain of my hands and feet and side, I have a physical need. I'm thirsty. Why have you forsaken me, he cries. Others say he saved others. Why can't he save himself? If you are the king of the Jews, why can't you save yourself? Jesus' response is, there's something more satisfying to me than food. There's something that I rely upon more dearly, even than food itself. Jesus answered, quoting the Old Testament now in Deuteronomy 8, It is written, man does not live on bread alone. Now, when Adam and Eve took the fruit, we're not told that they were hungry. We're told that it was beautiful. That they were attracted to it because of its beauty and because it looked like it was very tasty. But they hadn't been 40 days and 40 nights without food like Jesus. Second temptation. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it is given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Well, it had been his. He was the king of the universe. He was the son of God. The king of heaven. And Satan knew this. So he comes to him and he says, how do you like that being gone? How do you like that being taken away from you? All the kingdoms of the world used to be yours, but now they're mine. And I can give them to you if you will succumb to me, if you will follow what I do. Bow down and worship me. Become the Antichrist that we read about in Revelation. Turn away. 
apostatized. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answers, it it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, he goes to the scriptures as the foundation of what he wants to say. What was the last offer that Satan made to you? What deal did he present? What were his terms? What did he offer in exchange for your soul? What did he promise to you that you didn't think you could get any other way? It seems to me from the second temptation that Jesus is to some extent especially feeling the fact that he's lost his power and his authority in a public way that he once had. And so he too is tempted. The Bible says God alone must be worshipped even as Jesus says it here. Do you pray for that, that your worship would be only on him? Satan doesn't care what else you get as long as you don't make God your God. He's willing to give up everything for this one thing. Now you may say, I have no desire to be the king of the world and ruler of all things. But Jesus had that desire. It was his part of his life. But he says, I came to be to serve, not to be served. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only, he says. This is help for us when we're tempted. Turn your attention from the temptation, from that which you desire to the one who desires you. Turn your interest from those things which are trotted before you that might distract you to the one who loves you and gave himself for you. And then thirdly, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You won't be hurt. Jesus knows he's going to be hurt. He's not just going to trip. He's going to be tortured. It won't just be his foot. It'll be his whole body. And so Jesus is aware of the fact that the devil is seeking him to distract him from his mission. And that mission is so all-important that Satan has taken all the horses out of the barn. Everything he has that he can throw against Jesus is thrown against him. Physical temptation, power, pride temptation, and simply relief and escape temptation. You can avoid, you can avoid striking your foot against a stone if you let me be first. Jesus says in response, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
So where does that leave us? It leaves us with some very practical help. One is that when you pray and, and you say the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, you're praying to someone who knows about it. And while peanut butter and coffee don't tempt me, there are a lot of things that do. He's been tempted by all of them, and he's defeated them all. So you're talking to somebody who knows you. He knows what it is to be pulled and pushed by the, by the devil himself, in person, with customized temptations. He knows what it is, and he says, I'm with you. I won't leave or forsake you. Though you go even to the valley of the shadow of death, you should fear no evil, for I am with you. Don't fear that evil, but pray that you might not be tempted. There's such a thing as sort of flirting with temptation, you know, holding it out there and considering it. The kind of thing that Adam and Eve must have done with that lovely fruit. Flee from it. The scriptures say, run from the devil. Flee from the devil and he will flee from you. So that's one thing. He knows temptation that you face. He knows the weakness of the flesh without having given in to it. Secondly, he points us to the scriptures as our greatest resource. He doesn't say like he does to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, later. He, he defeats the devil simply by quoting the scriptures. That's the kind of power the Bible has. That's the kind of power that is contained in the scriptures. That the one, Jesus didn't appeal to the angels. He didn't even appeal to his father. He appealed to the scriptures. And so when we are weak and when we are tempted, it's to the scriptures that we can go. Well, you say the scriptures don't mention peanut butter and coffee. No, they don't mention them specifically, but they give us the principles and the power for responding actively to what he's done for us, by what he's done for us through his word. Take a lesson from the Savior, the greatest undefeated Lord of all time. Turn to the Bible for help. And then finally, let us come with humility. You notice here that Jesus doesn't have a lot to say. He feels the weight of these things. He is sorely tempted. But not thinking more highly of himself than he should, he succumbs quietly, simply to the word of God. Not a lot of argument, explanation, submission. He submits to the Father. Now I hope in our few moments together this morning, you have been made to feel more connected to Christ. That's my purpose. Not to tell you about a Bible story that you've heard many times before, but to help you only, but to help you feel connected to Christ. He understands. And it makes me want to have more of him. 
it makes me want to trust him and, and give to him more because he did this for me. But never forget what was at stake here. We're, never, we're not talking about ruined lives. We're talking about no redeemer. If, we, if Jesus hadn't stood against these things, then he would have no righteousness to bring to the Father on our behalf. And the Father would have no way to forgive us for what he did. So this is absolutely crucial, absolutely critical to our redemption. Interesting verse that he closes this passage with. It says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Well, we know that was Calvary. We know that he came against Jesus for full force. And Jesus resisted again in Gethsemane. Resisted again before Pilate. He resisted again before the crowds and the soldiers. He resisted again before the devil on the cross. He resisted again before the taunts and jeering of the two thieves at first. He resisted again and again and again for you, for me. We needed a Savior, and we have one. We needed someone to do what we couldn't do regarding temptation and sin, and we have one. This is very, very good news. Upon this news, the church is built and flourishes in spite of all of its weaknesses and failings. We stand upon this one great truth. And my prayer is that as you think of what he did for you, you'll love him more. Let us pray. Oh Lord, it's difficult for us to put ourselves in your place. We thank you that you put yourself in our place. We have failed when temptation has come, time and time and time again. We have shown our weakness to ourselves and to others and to, to you. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is someone who is a successful Savior and Redeemer, one who has been tempted in all points like we are and yet without sin. Hallelujah. What great news that is that we have a Savior like that. Help us to love you more, to be drawn more into your presence by our affections for what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.